the more you play with people, the more you get used to their position, you get used to their movements, and obviously you build chemistry. Did it take long to build the chemistry with Shane Walsh then? No, didn't take long at all. <laughs> Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Now you're very welcome back. So we're going to get through the Sunday papers. Very happy to say Sinead O'Carroll, editor at the Journal Dalai, is with us, as is Fianna Foley, broadcaster and journalist. You're both very welcome. Thanks for having us. I will be honest, I would love nothing more than to chat to you all about the 245 pieces on Prince Harry's book. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good stuff in these papers. That is the good stuff. He's uh, the, what, the Invictus Games? Does that qualify him for <laughs> off the ball chat? Somebody brilliantly just uh, suggesting today that the Gallagher twins should pay them in a movie. <laughs> yeah, not far off it. It seems they've had more scraps. Uh, sadly, we can't do that. So we're going to turn to the sports pages. Uh, in no particular order, the Mail on Sunday here have United's new uh, Ronaldo rule, which is quite interesting. So Manchester United are going to impose a 200 grand a week salary cap to avoid squad jealousies. So, for instance, David De Gea, when his 375 grand a week deal runs out in the summer, is going to be offered a take it or leave it deal. Uh, the point is made in this piece by Joe Bernstein that the likes of Rafael Varane, Harry Maguire, Casemiro, Bruno Fernandes are all in that 180 to 200 a week bracket and that's going to be where Manchester United pitch up. Eric Ten Hag wants to avoid a culture of dressing room jealousy. So that's on the back page of the Mail on Sunday. Picture as well of Sheffield Wednesday celebrating against Newcastle. 2-1 winners uh, yesterday. There's a picture in the Sunday Times. It's just been that kind of year and it won't stop for Liverpool. So Alisson in Blunderland. Reds held by Wolves in FA Cup after keeper's error. So 2-2 draw there. And beneath that, and this is in quite a few of the papers, Manchester United are in exploratory talks with Veghorst, the Burnley striker, currently on loan at Besiktas. Uh, we will know him as well as the guy who scored twice for the Dutch against Argentina in the World Cup. So it seems Manchester United are looking at the six foot six. Centre forward is an option for the rest of the season. Uh, Sunday Independent has Ten Hag slams Manchester United's signings. Reasonably interesting this. Eric Ten Hag uh, talking, I presume, post Friday night's win against Everton, 3-1 win. And they're now seven in a row, Manchester United. But he, he frankly was just talking about how dreadful they were when he arrived. No spirit, no dynamic in the squad, mental resilience low. I saw that as an outsider and I noticed it in my first weeks at the club. He said of the signings over the last number of years, most purchases have been average and at United average isn't good enough. And he cites Christian Eriksen and Casemiro as real game changers and personalities who've changed things. So uh, things are going well. Uh, 14 wins in 17 for Ten Hag. They're in the Carabao Cup against Charlton on Tuesday. So that's the front page of the Sunday Independent. The picture is of uh, Mo Salah celebrating his goal. Sunday Mirror have uh, celebrations from Wolves against Liverpool yesterday. Uh, Liverpool will face an FA Cup third round replay with Wolves after a night to forget for Alisson. And then Frank Lampard apparently faces last role of the Deitch. Everton and Southampton both looking at Sean Deitch as potential replacements for their respective managers. Uh, Sunday World, another manager who's going to get the sack, uh, apparently, is Graeme Potter. Or certainly he says he's not worried about it. They play Manchester City today in the FA Cup and things aren't good 17 games into his reign at Stamford Bridge. Zinedine Zidane and Mauricio Pochettino have been linked with Chelsea. So they are your uh, various sports pages. Uh, Not too sure where to start. I don't know what what the standout is. Uh, Certainly uh, a theme 
which is across the Sunday Independent and the Mail on Sunday, focuses on the up the rah chants, which have become very much a part of the sporting lexicon over the last couple of months. So Shane McGrath, page 62 of the Mail on Sunday, and Joe Brawley is writing about, um, well, selective condemnation. Uh, Leinster get away with it. The Republic of Ireland women's team very much don't get away with it, is his point. If we start with Shane McGrath, he takes quite a nuanced look at how this um, issue has blown up, particularly of late, that, you know, these songs were often sung and it's really only almost post-peace that they become more of an issue for people. Yeah, and the angle he takes on it is that actually he talks to two historians about it, uh, Brian Hanley in Trinity and um, Dr. Richard McGilligot uh, talks about Irish modern history, a lecture in, in Dundalk, and they're looking at it in the context of the further, I suppose the headline is the further the further you go away from violence, uh, it's a sign that we've how far we've come from that people are enraged about a song as opposed to about you know about actual violence itself. Um, yeah, it, they're they're very mixed. I mean, Joe Brawley obviously has a very um, very personal take on all of this because of his his personal history growing up in the north during during the worst time of what still euphemistically called the troubles yeah. a civil war um and uh, also the fact that his his father was interned and tells a very interesting story about his son not believing him when he tells him about the fact that his father was interned um so you know they're both it's hard to it's hard to i think it's hard like i grew up in the 70s I grew up watching the North on television. My mother's from Donegal. Maybe that just made us. But I, I, I do. I'm. I would never sing that chant because of what I witnessed. I suppose growing up, miles away from it, untouched by it, and yet conscious of the horror that was that was on both sides of the communities up there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it is. It is about the distance, and also um, I think it's it's made in this in Shane McGrath's piece in the Daily Mail as well. One of the one of the academics makes the point as well that there is a thing also about young people always singing songs that they know their parents are going to react to. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that there's a whole cultural background here that is interesting. But he makes the the point is made, and Joe Brawley makes it as well, is that. There are a lot of celebratory songs in Irish sports that have Republican links, and and the most famous one, of the most famous in GA is Joe McDonald's famous "The West Awake," and nobody, you know, in 1980 when they won, when Galway won, uh, nobody made a big thing of it, and the fact that um, Sean South, if you if you if you follow rugby in Limerick, you know Sean South is a is there is a Republican song which is is sung down there and has more recently been adapted by Limerick hurling supporters, so. In some ways, everything is about context, yeah. you know. Yeah, and sure. that's what Joe Brawley makes the kind of his kind of big point, and um, I'm not sure where I land on this myself. But his point is that it's about the singers, not the songs. So he's he's saying that the the women's team got. Um, a backlash from the establishment and he brings up Fintan O'Toole's piece and um, Matt Cooper's tweets and saying like that was because of who the women were and that it's it's very much a working class um, sport with working class women playing and that's why it, it there was a marked difference um, to say the reaction to Leinster singing it in 2018 or adopting it as a kind of anthem for themselves. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting point and I think uh, probably plays on Joe Brawley's own reaction to the, the to the reaction to the women at the time, he thought it was uh, overblown. So you know, he's now saying, "Oh, I was I was right back then because this has happened now." And yes, it did get covered. Yes, Leinster did have to apologise, but it wasn't five days of hand wringing after an apology. It was you know much more low key than that. Yeah. 
And I think there's a load of context there as well. Like it was a really unfortunate, you know, one the 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 women's team in the it because it got so highlighted because it happened when it happened yeah. as well in that context and also because they're sponsored by by Sky as well. Obviously, I think that had a link to it. I'm not inclined to believe. I'm not inclined to agree with Raleigh's line here. And he says, you know, he asked a Protestant friend about it and said, "Is this a class thing?" Of course, this is an agenda attacking working class soccer girls as part of it. He is, of course, correct. The establishment will not attack the rugby rugby fraternity since they are part of the establishment. Um, I'm not inclined to agree with that in some ways. I just think. I think it's always nearly always about context and it was context in that instance but I was surprised that more wasn't made of of it being played at a Leinster rugby match I did think that that it was surprising there wasn't the same you, um, you, you can know, look at it in two ways because, that. because the Leinster players weren't singing it so there's a big difference there like the, obviously the, the women themselves were, were singing the song and the Leinster players weren't but then you could look at that from the other side and say well that was actually like Leinster's official dumb then doing it rather than you've just qualified for the World Cup for the first time in your history and you're singing that song in the exact same manner as you're singing a Taylor Swift song so we're not actually you know chanting about the IRA we're, we're just singing songs so you can kind of look at it both ways but I, I feel the same as I did back then um, these are really interesting discussions and one of the historians says makes the same point to Shane McGrath like it's, it's a very interesting discussion and probably one that we all need to have but like it's frustrating that we had to have it on the back of the best women's sporting moments uh, um, of probably all time in Ireland, you know, qualifying for a World Cup. So um, and the fact that we tried to have it on the shoulders of those women, um, I think is the wrong way of, of doing it. But probably now on the back of, oh, hang on, you know, Limer Curlers, Leinster Rugby, Irish women, like it is so Raleigh harsh. Says jo- um, Jack Charlton, you know, again, yeah. Charlton and that Charlton's team as well. Brian one. his Irish team yes, from singing them. Right. He just banned all rebel songs. So yeah. he just yeah. said, if it's a rebel song, it's out. It's not on the playlist. It's not on the bus. Um, so like they're probably the interesting conversations now that sporting organisations are going to have to have. But where's the line? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know? Because even Shane McGrath's point, the piece does make the point that, for instance, like the West's Awake, they're celebrating events that were hundreds of years ago. They're safely wrapped inside centuries of history, whereas the Up the Rat chant is obviously far more immediate and victims' families and victims are still very much alive and it's a lived experience for lots of people like it is very uh, like and our national anthem is a soldier song do you know what I mean Joe Brawley makes well? that like, point yeah, yeah. yeah there's, I mean I think Joe Brawley's piece is really interesting and, and well worth a read you know just in terms of context and understanding where people come from on this you know and he makes a very clear point I did not support the IRA and abhorred the taking of human life all war is insane yes. I am however interested in honesty Yes. And he's just talking, he feels that there's dishonesty and a dishonest um, revisionism, really, in terms of a lot of this stuff, you know. Um, And he talks about, you know, how do you view, were these the good or the bad IRA? You know, there's all that to it as well. Because I think we revered the IRA, the old IRA, you know, general, general opinion has a very different view of them. Of well, he does say, I mean, the old IRA is, oh, why, is the yeah. IRA that Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar very much celebrate and revel <laughs> yeah. in, whereas the more recent IRA are very much persona non grata. On and, the, uh, and I think that's where the context of why there was such a reaction, visceral reaction to the women's, like that was just a short chat, short section of the song put up on Instagram and people saw it. So it did look like a chant rather than the singing of a of a song, yes. you know, like th- they are the words of the song. So that that context was hard to grasp because it was just a, f- a few second clip from, from Instagram that went viral. Yeah. So, you know, if 
that had happened. So the Leinster Rugby one was the opposite. They sang the other parts of the song in the video and that part of the song wasn't yeah. in the video. So, you know, if yeah. you swap that around, would we would we have had the same big conversation around Leinster Rugby I would back like to think in three so. years ago? I'd imagine we would have... On the basis of their class, I would like to think so. Yeah. I really would. I think you. I, yeah, I. That's what, as I said, I was surprised that there wasn't more of a Ferrari over that recent playing of the song, oh, particularly given the context where it's yes. happened recently. Yeah, I, what I would like to see is a bit of fatigue are we about that. Was there a degree of a guy? Do we get into all? Do we need to talk about this again? No, I think there's that part. Uh, of it? No, I think there's a degree of PR. You know, nobody's answerable for who was played on on uh, played across. That, you know, that visual aspect. I was wasn't about there. to make the exact yeah. same point, Clina. I I think because I think because the players weren't front and centre of anything that came out about it is fair enough but you know we I think if you wanted to see Vera Pau make the apology if you wanted to see all the girls having to be asked about it and not have the big moment that they kind of deserved say going on the Late Late Show on the Friday night or whatever if that's what you wanted to see then you also have to say okay well Leo Cullen needs to be asked Johnny Sexton needs to be asked you know we've been told they've adopted as an an anthem so if if you Mm. wanted all of those apologies from the women then you should want them from the the faces that you know from Leinster and not just be allowed to say oh it was the PA system and it's you know oh sorry about that we're not going to ask about it at press conferences we're just going to send emails to the but then you know people who thought it was a you know what you do about nothing back the the women's will probably say fair enough this is what you do about nothing as well but I think you have to be consistent with the two to prove that it's not about class or establishment I I did to be fair and so I mean now we're into a here's another kind of layer on it all is is singing the song without saying up the ra egregious because as I understand it and this comes with a slight health warning I haven't seen the full video uh, but I did hear Rory O'Connor uh, make the point that apparently at the offensive point, Leinster players are inclined to sing Ua Luke McGrath. Right. As opposed to Ua Up the Ra. So is singing Celtic Symphony with Ua Luke McGrath as opposed to Ua Up the Ra? Is that okay? Is that kosher? I mean, what are the rules here? But it is, exactly, again, it's a yeah. slight, it is a sli- it's more than a slight difference. Oh, actually, no, I think it's, I, yeah, no, it's, I think it's, it's a definitely a significant difference. But if you've adopted the song as your anthem, does, yeah, does that put you in the same bracket? But just, yeah, not as bad, but in the same bracket. It is, it's, yeah, it can be. It's, a, it's an interesting question as to why media stories blow up and others don't. So Joe Brawley here posits the theory, well, this is a working class team. So they were condemned by the establishment and the posh rugby Leinster boys are given a free pass because of their status. I mean, it's funny. I don't I never remembered that video being even the slightest talking point, the Leinster video at the time. Um, yeah. Whatever about this most recent RDS situation, which again you can see why that's not as big a story as the players. I wasn't it. aware of it until but until the women's team, and then I saw it retrospectively. Yeah. So I wasn't aware of it either. Like there's yeah. this notion that the media is is you know is anything but this commercial entity. It's very uneven. Like why do some murders attract mm. huge national attention and huge uh, coverage akin to Ashley Murphy? Is it rightly? should have yeah. whereas other murders and we've seen them yeah, very recently yeah, we've yeah. seen women strangled and pregnant women stabbed and there isn't the same uh, coverage mm. and, and and I don't know why that is sometimes there are various factors like if you take the Irish team one the whole country watched that moment yeah. so they were front and centre the video came out very shortly afterwards as you said Sinead, it's just them chanting ooh out the ra they're not yeah. even really singing yeah and then the next morning, Vera Powell is out front and centre to make an apology. And then there is the statement from UEFA. 
and then there's like Rob Wooten of Sky Sports just for more gasoline. Yeah. It's like we're having this we're having this issue ourselves and then you step in and don't help the thing at all and then we uh, that gets everybody fired up again. And so I would class almost the Fintan O'Toole piece and the Una Malali piece. They're like the second wave of coverage but a story needs that initial gasoline to kind of catch capture but the imagination but as you said but I don't think that's I think, I think it was such I don't think that a was big class. story as well sometimes these are just stories that then all the columnists are you know asked for their opinion on it and they weighed in on it and I think that's what happened point. that yeah, because yeah. as yeah. you said there was such massive interest in this event because it was such a historic event everybody was so delighted for these women you know it was such a breakthrough for Irish yes, women's football but it feels like more like that than hang on a working class team sang something let's get in there yeah, I, I think that's why I was saying at the start, I'm not sure where I sit with Brawley's um, line on that. But I don't agree with Brawley's line I, on this, I yeah. can also see why he's posited it. So yeah, can I, you yeah. Know? yeah, I can. So yeah. I, I can see why it, it, it is something that came into his head, uh, especially because he was so um, thoughtful about what he was saying in the initial wave yeah. about it. Um, it's worth the media asking, have we let Leinster rugby off the hook far more easily? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, even though I might not agree with it, I, I still think it's a, it's an interesting thing to question because sometimes stories just take off because they the public have cottoned onto them and, and have had started these discussions organically, you know, yeah, or they've had the lifeline treatment or, yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. so yeah. sometimes it is that. And like there could have been loads of internalized biases about why the public picked up on these mm. stories about the women. You know, it could be, well, we don't really like seeing them, you know, take over our sporting pages. We're going to just take them down a peg or two. That might have been 1% of sure. the people talking about it, but that might be 1% of the people talking about it. And then uh, the, the others. But I think because of the sky question as well, it became more of a, like, a row. People then were like siding with the women and it just like created this well, like... degree with that of even... I really didn't like them singing up the rap, but she's then when Scott when yeah. Rob Wooden gets involved, well, well, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah, like we exactly. Or we could have genuinely been saying, yeah, well, we probably you know could talk about the troubles a bit better in school or whatever. But like an outsider telling yes. us we need to educate oh, dear, ourselves yeah. better, yeah. absolutely yeah. not. Even yeah. though that might have been the conversation we were having. So, um, yeah, it's it's like how to get how to have this rebel song conversation in a way that then doesn't do the... Like the Finchon O'Toole column that Joe Brawley kind of does have a significant issue with he in, says, in his he finds piece. It, he finds it abhorrent. He felt that it was akin to... It listed out all the troubles almost in like a, a, akin to a Tarantino script. Yeah, and he also he also he mentions... The Judas almost, I think is what Judas, he's saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, and but he but also mentions that a, a victim, so the, the survivor of the Miami Showman massacre, also yeah, took issue yeah. with it when Finchon O'Toole wrote the piece attacking the girl Stephen um, Stravers Stephen yeah. behind every atrocity of the so-called troubles lies unending grief and all too often despair so it is beyond cruel and doubly heartbreaking to see the suffering of victims used as political footballs by people who ordinarily do not give victims a second thought but I've, like, I've heard Stephen Travers interviewed and I remember that that that, that awful murder and he's he in, in when you hear him speak he's unbelievably um, he's just incredibly peaceful you know yeah. peaceful person who sees both sides of the story you know he's he's an unusual he's quoting him here but he's an un, unusual person I think as well in the way that he is handled with everything as well yeah, so Joe Bradley said he replied to the um, Fintan O'Toole which Matt Cooper had recommended and Joe Bradley says he replied saying that the book Lost Lives sets out all the grim detail factually uh, we lived through the horrors Fintan O'Toole wrote this gleefully like Tarantino writing a script we could all do this forever and post the bodies from every atrocity the point, though, is 
clearly and the younger generation in particular and I haven't read Lost Lives either mm. that message is not necessarily getting through people are not reading Lost Lives and yeah. the point there was a gratuitous element to Fintan O'Toole's article but the point was to lay it out in gratuitous terms to be shocking to actually yeah. make a generation who maybe weren't appreciating the grim realities of what happened read the piece and go God that is gruesome that is awful the point was to be Shocking, because, like I said, not everybody's reading Lost Lives. And so, you know, that that point about how uh, this has been, you know, that the, the victim had, had said that uh, this is, you know, has been used almost as a political uh, football by people who don't really care about the atrocities. I don't I think that's unfair on, on Fintan O'Toole in this instance. But equally, what would you say then about people just singing so thoughtlessly? when it comes to the victims at a moment of celebration. Yeah, exactly. That's not a delicate handling of our history either, is it? And that's what Fintan O'Toole's piece was at the time, was to try and, I think, probably this is, and I don't want to put words in Joe Barley's mouth, but I think probably he's coming from and saying, like, we didn't need to, you know, bring this team over the coals again. Like, that was whatever, day three or day four. They'd already done the apology. What more could they have done? It's not like they were saying you know, we have dismissed everything the IRA have done and we need to be reminded of all the atrocities. So I think that's probably what he's saying is that, like, we didn't need that on the back of this story. Like, you know, we didn't need to haul these women over the coals for it because it doesn't make sense to because this song has existed since 1980-whatever and people have been singing it. So um, I think that's probably where the question comes from. Why did we all um, kind of want to have this conversation on the back of this team? Um, I think it's fair enough because it was that big moment and the, I think the, yes. the, perfect story. the video was, was so visceral the video yeah. really was yeah. and um, the, I, w- I was listening to Roy O'Connor when you, when you mentioned earlier he was on with David Trim- or David Trimble Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Trimble yeah. and um, Andrew Trimble was saying that that he he thought that they were doing it gleefully like which again I thought was unfair because if he had seen the Taylor Swift like yeah. portion of those videos they were also really gleeful there the it wasn't, they weren't the being gleeful about winning. the IRA they yeah, were being gleeful yeah, about winning yeah, yeah. but that was the context that he had picked the video up in you know so mm. um, it's a uh, it's, it's I don't think it's something we're going to solve here no because I heard yeah. Una Malali she was on Brian Kerr the second captain's show yeah you know yeah. she was making a fair point because she tried to tease it all out again without taken aside necessarily which I think is the way we should mostly try and do it yeah. in this instance and she was saying on the one hand you know her piece which went viral at the time yeah. did definitely accept that the younger generation sing it in a different way and it and doesn't sing it mean in the pops same thing and do all that but yeah. then she did ask the very fair question it's sort of where I would lean as well well like at what point are you not responsible for what comes out of your mouth yeah. if you're coming out with yeah. a homophobic or a racist slur and yeah. it's disrespectful and you say but it's just a bit of crack yeah, and if you're point, educated to say, "Oh my goodness," you know, do you understand what that means? And then you say, "Never, okay, yeah. now I understand." Well, then that's progress. <laughs> or if you've said, "I've been doing," I did understand what I meant because I think a lot of the yeah. women on that team, they're like, they're not, you know, Smart. they're not fourteen and they're not oh, like no. silly. So, like, you know, they probably did. They, they all said it was a stupid mistake, and we can't believe we did it. And we, they also ruined their own moment, like you know. So I don't think any of them will ever sing it again. If they did, then we would have something that I would say would be closer to what they they would have deserved more of the the four or five days of you know being hauled over the coals for it. But I think for me, listening to Una 
um, with Brian Kerr on the second captains that was interesting because in her piece, which I thought was really um, the initially really well thought out, but one of the things that when I had finished it was thinking, God, if we were talking in any other country about the rise of nationalism and republicanism, we would be doing it with a bit of a like red flag planted in the middle of it, going, you know, this this can be a dangerous road, yeah. and that was something that Una hadn't said, but then came to that conclusion in conversation with Brian Kerr being like, yeah, like often these things, but it doesn't have to be. And she felt that there is like parts of that happening in Ireland, that parts of the rise of republicanism is more about socialism and less about fascism. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's such a live political um, and story at the moment as well about, you know, republicanism, United Ireland, where does majority of people stand on it? Um, the P- in, in Shane McGrath's piece, one of the academics you know, who makes the point, he just says, um, we need to step back from the more hysterical denunciations of it and maybe have a broader discussion about what then do you mean if you call yourself a Republican? What does that mean in the 21st century? Mm. You know, but it's interesting that it's so wrought in sport and that sport, to, you know, in expressions of joy in sport, these things crop mm. up. I mean, I remember when the Irish team came back and that same chant was used when Nelson Mandela, if you remember that famous, which people would never do now. And the famous chant was uh, uh, Paul McGrath's da. I mean, the yeah. height of racism. Yeah. And everyone thought it was very funny. Very back charming. Then. Almost, it, you yeah. know, yeah, naive. You know what I mean? It Everything has a context. Everything has history. Everything. Things change with time, I think, you know. Yeah. I and remember that's, being shocked. That's probably shocked. also the, the, th- the context of this as well. Like the the popularity of Sinn Féin probably does come into some people's reaction to this as well. So people who don't like seeing the, the rise of the popularity of Sinn Féin kind of go they feel this goes hand in hand yes. with that. And Joe I think, and I think Joe is very point. sensitive to that and makes yeah. that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're both really worth yeah. reading. Yeah, I really think. worth so reading. Shane yeah. McGrath has taken a more broader view of this journey that Republican songs have been on throughout Irish sport. Joe Brawley very much focused on the different treatment received by Leinster versus the Irish women's team. Both worth a read in the Mail on Sunday and the Sunday Independent. We'll take a very short break. Back in one moment. Now you're welcome back. Just before we continue the Sunday papers, let's check in at Crow Park. We are uh, probably fast approaching halftime. Kilmacud Croaks of Dublin against Kerry's Kerrens O'Rahillies. We have Mossy Quinn watching the first 30 plus minutes there. Mossy, what's the latest? Afternoon, Joe. Yeah, it's Kilmacud, eight points. Uh, Kerrens O'Rahilly, six points. Just as we tick into injury time, the referee is talking to Barry John Keane, Kerrens O'Rahilly's corner forward. He just scored a point to reduce the gap to two points, and I think he struck someone on the way out. So so it is a yellow card. Very John Keane gives the ref a little tap on the back there as he's happy enough, I'd say, with that outcome. Now, I don't think there was much in it, but he's he's been fairly fired up, Barry John Keane. He's played well so far. That was the second point of the day. Um, another long ball into the Kilmacud full back line caused a bit of um, caused a bit of confusion in there, and he ended up profiting from it. But Kilmacud have been the better team, Joe. They've um, they've picked off scores, kind of. They've six scores out of the eight points. Shane Walsh has only scored one point from play. He's been good. He's shown flashes at times, but. Shane Cunningham with two from play. Dara Mullen with another two at full forward. He's been excellent so far. Um, one of the interesting things for me has been Tommy Walsh at full forward for Cairns O'Rahillys has been excellent. And Kilmacud have a 19-year-old, Theo Clancy. Now, he'd be a very highly regarded underage player within Dublin. But to me, it would have seemed like Rory O'Carroll might have been the obvious one. But that would have taken Rory out of a centre-back role where he's had a good game so far. So, interesting second half coming up. Croaks were 8-4 up. And Cairns O'Rahillys just got the last two points. And they've gone in there with a bit of pep in their step. So, big second half coming up. Very good. Marcy, thanks for the time being. Half time there. So it's Croaks, eight points. Cairns Rally, six points. Uh, we knew it was half time because I could hear the music being played 
And that is a point that oh, Shane McGrath just please. makes. We've all made this a billion times. Maybe they'll listen one day. This is just alongside his piece on Rebel Songs at Sporting Events. He does just say on the back of the Leinster Celtic Symphony yeah. moment that maybe they will just leave us alone when we're in stadiums yeah. uh, as a whole. He says, uh, what this mess should also do, though, aside from not playing rebel songs at matches, is make the IRFU reconsider its entire approach to pre- and post-match entertainment, both in the uh, provinces and at the Aviva Stadium for test matches. The determination to whip up the crowd through the use of pitch-side entertainers or music played regularly at absurdly loud levels may hopefully waver in the aftermath of all this. Oh my goodness. And I mean... What chance? Do you know what? I think think Irish sports administrators particularly... They have to think about, read the room, listen to the audience. What do we love to do when we go to matches? Chat. Chat at half time and have a real serious chat at half time about, about what we've just seen. We're not like, we're, we're talkers anyway. And the Crow Park can be as bad. It's just this relentless, booming, you know, music. It's just, I hate it. I just hate it. I do the person. Do you prefer thing when they me. like get Dahi O'Shea to do a thing? No, I don't want anything. <laughs> I don't, I just want to, I just want to have a chat with whoever's yeah. beside me. I don't know about you and, and chat about the match well, and what look, we've just The Aviva seen. Stadium is particularly bad. And if you're up high, you're near the speakers. And I've, I turned around at one stage pre match and the music was pumping. And I, I just out of curiosity, and everybody behind me was glum. It's too loud to even attempt talking. <laughs> just they're just staring, like, contemplating their lives. Yeah. But like it's it came from it's this American thing of people have to be entertained. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't have to be entertained actually in Ireland. Okay, wait. maybe for an all Ireland yeah. fine. We have a massive big <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they have phones now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, Make it we stop. can just not talk Make to each other. And scroll it's on just so loud. Computer. It's too loud to talk. Oh, poor Joe. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, even at twenty, I was in nightclubs going. It's too loud. Let's leave. Uh, I think there's probably an element of like trying to make it family friendly and to make sure that that kids can get entertained and all that. But like you can't be all things to all people. Um, so yeah, it's uh, whatever about the the pre and the the halftime and the end stuff. Just keep it out and, and of the, and keep it out of the actual match. Time and the, and yeah, the one enough. where they play the rah rah stuff from the scores. Do you mean literally the rah rah? <laughs> no, not the rah <laughs> Pardon me. But the one now for the scoring and the kind of you know the kind of triumphalism. I really hate that. Yeah, yeah. I so really if, hate if that. I think that's really arrogant. Matches, yeah, yeah, that's totally unnecessary. And you know as well because we see across all sports the homogenisation of stadiums. Yeah. Mm. And so the experience is now just the same everywhere you go. Yeah. It's the same four, five, six songs that are always played and there's nothing organic that can start. Yeah, like the... Um, well, we had the Munster have taken on uh, Dolores or Reardon's and Probably. that was kind of quite organic and now that's played kind of all the and time. And that kind of came from Lynn McCurlers as that well. That came from Lynn McCurlers yeah. and obviously after her death and stuff, which was awful, yeah. but it has become this nice organic thing yes. that has yeah. happened. It's not Seven Nation Army over and over again. Yeah. In the stadium. yeah. <laughs> so if those things happen and then... they can be adopted by the more official things that can work well I have a similar protest with people who hand you placards that say things like try and yay you know again all coming from American sports things we never had never needed and I think are unnecessary we had um, we went to see uh, England play Norway in Brighton in the women's Euros uh, over the summer and it was probably the most family friendly inclusive sporting event that I've ever been to so full stadium of about 28,000 people um, huge amount of uh, families, huge amount of little girls, um, but also like pockets of 
big groups of lads. Yeah, like, boys teams. Like couples, uh, like me, my sister and my one-year-old were there. You know, it was a real mix of different people. But And there was a lot of, because it was 8-0 by the end, there was a lot of like Mexican waves and trying to get going. But actually the most um, wonderful part of it was there was like loads of kids chanting to each other. Like so in the part of the stadium I was in, there was a, a group of young Norwegians and a group of young English people and they were like just having banter chanting over and back to each other and it was actually really really lovely and um, so it was this family event that they did make friendly by having a little bit of entertainment but not too much and they had a bit of you know the the Mexican waves being started but it did work like the yeah. the, the young girls were entertained for the whole 90 minutes you know um, or 100 minutes whatever yeah, I had football similar, is now <laughs> I had a similar experience I went over to the I went to see France uh, the, the semi-final of France Germany and it was very similar and actually the the cr- the beating of the drums was amazing and, and it was led by this young teenage German kids and you could see them down the front and every time they started the whole stadium erupted and it was very organic everybody kind of just went with them mm. and it was lovely but there was nothing forced about it you know yeah. and that night right beside us actually was a whole uh, underage boys team and their coaches had brought them along to it and they were mad into it they just had the best night and again every time the drum started they were off so it's just an organic thing there's a very good article today actually um, is it Michael Foley does it about the naming oh, on the Enfantina yeah. thing is it actually the same with it quite well we'll get to that so you mentioned the length of matches Cleena, you're yeah. mad for this oh yeah uh, there, there's a piece <laughs> I'm complete cringe today post Christmas cringe <laughs> James Sharp has written what else can we give out about yeah, I'm getting it all out of my system it's okay yeah. it's okay uh, so in effect uh, the point has been made that Premier League fans are being left shortchanged uh, new figures reveal we're seeing less ball and play time so since Opta began keeping stats 11 years ago this is the all-time low. The Premier League you're watching right now, all-time low for ball and play time. We're averaging 54 minutes of the 90 plus injury time, obviously, ball and play. Um, Newcastle, one of the worst defenders. Their matches see the ball and play for just 51 minutes of the 90 plus. Leeds, the biggest culprits, ball and play just 50 minutes. Whereas you won't be surprised to hear Man City, they keep the ball in play in their games on average 61 minutes of the 90. So... Given the conversations at the World Cup where they just added on 10, 12 minutes sometimes after each half to uh, counter these stoppages in play deliberately or otherwise, another option being discussed, which is the interesting thing, (laughs) another option is to reduce matches to 60 minutes with a countdown clock and the supporters would see that that clock would stop whenever there's a break in play, Uh, not necessarily a goal kick or a throw-in, but certainly for things like VAR, injuries, goal celebrations. Uh, David Dean apparently is pushing this. He's discussed it with Perluigi Kalina in Qatar. Obviously, I still think we might all be sitting there for the guts of 70, 80, (laughs) 90 minutes, but the clock would show 60 and, and would pause at certain points. I just always feel, I've always felt... I don't know where it came from and I don't know why, but I've always felt that, that soccer matches, football matches, 90 minutes is too long for a game. I'm sorry. And now they're even longer. And VAR is a huge culprit now, let's face it as well. It isn't just, I mean, I don't mind the, po- the, you know, the post-goal celebrations, any of that, because that all adds to the atmosphere. But VAR actually is a big factor in it as well. Um, but I actually have always felt, because of the nature of, of football, that, that actually you can get a nil-nil draw. Now, the, the level of premiership 
quality of the Premiership at the moment means actually, you know, the quality of football is so good. You don't get them too often or you don't get the really bad ones. But back in the 70s and 80s, you're watching Match of the Day or you're watching English football and you think, oh, my God, it should be uh, it should be 75 minutes max. And most a lot of sports are, are a lot shorter. Yeah. And I just think, why 90 minutes for a game that can potentially be very defensive and very negative? Do you, what, to what extent? I'm do not, a, not American now. I don't want goals all the time. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I think, look, I think we've all had the experience of sitting through a match and it's in the 61st minute and thinking, God, this won't end. But to what extent do you think it's because there's just more to do now? How do you mean? I don't understand the question. Well, when they were devising this, life was pretty dull. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now you have limitless content. Yeah, and, and you've got your phone in your hand and phone, you're watching two screens. You can go and do any number of things, hop in the car, you can go onto Netflix. You know, there's just more choice. And so suddenly, 90 minutes. Giving up 90 minutes. It's a lot of time. Yeah. What, to what, to what extent do you think it's that? I just think 90 minutes. I always, look, always, I always look at it and say, what what more was introduced to that match by adding another 20 minutes to it? Surely 70 minutes max is enough. I mean, rugby is, what is it now? It's, it's, oh, it's forever. Well, I was, I was about to... feel as long now I, because of all the stoppages. I was about to make the point. So, like, I do think uh, officials in sports should watch each other's sports more because, like, they're looking <laughs> going, do you know what we should do? We should do what rugby do and what... It, annoys everybody about rugby <laughs> like that it just goes on and on and on and the time wasting is worse because yeah. of the stop clock because the clock has stopped like yeah. and you can take what like what did Ross Byrne take two minutes 13 seconds the to reset like, scrums are the real yeah. well, that's the real and there's the drinking water and yeah. there's chatting to each other and there's asking Johnny Sexton <laughs> should we tie our shoelaces <laughs> this way or that way like you know it's yeah it's it's not the way Basketball is action-packed four by ten quarters. We were just talking about do you feel better or worse when you add quarters or more breaks into a game as a player? You probably don't. Um, I think hockey, I remember, it, there's not, what's the, what is, what would happen or change if you made it a shorter game? That's my question. Always is there about, an argument that, well, fitness is such now that if you take teams that are somewhat defensive and they get into their banks of four and they defend that you almost need the 90 minutes for them to get a bit tired and the game to become a bit <laughs> ragged that if it was 60 <laughs> well, minutes they'd be able to This is why oh my husband Lord, only watches the down. second half of football matches he's like <laughs> if I turn on a match he's like put, like puts his head in a book or just like walks out of the room he's like I'll, I'll watch the last I'll watch the second half or the last 15 minutes for that reason that more stuff happens The game opens you know? up a bit yeah, The game yeah. might never open up otherwise Yeah and I do feel remember the water breaks during Covid yeah, in the GA yeah that they were terrible because they they broke the game they broke up. the momentum they broke terribly. the momentum so if yeah. one team was yeah. about to come back or do something then the other the team had a chance to regroup yeah. particularly if they're the, the, the stronger team, team. Yeah. like yeah. they get a chance to regroup I remember when Intercounty GA was 60 minutes and then it went to 70 minutes and I, do, I don't think that it makes a huge big difference 70 is a lovely number I think 70 is a fair number yeah. 60 and yeah. 70 are both lovely 70. numbers and then if you are going to 80 or 90 for football or rugby they do need to crack down on the, the wasting because yesterday when uh, was it yesterday or the day before Leinster playing it felt like it went yesterday, on forever it was like oh my god yeah. there's like how is this still how is this match still happening <laughs> like there's what? not a child in the house watch yeah Rogue is uh, the most out of control it is yeah yeah and we and we know from the big uh, conclave that they had in November that they're going to try and start cracking down yeah. now and in fact the rules exist I think it's just that they're not enforcing actually them. enforcing yeah. them yeah yeah another example yeah. of rugby being led away with. And, <laughs> and, if, and if football did the same thing with VAR it's like 
giving yourself too much time just gives yourself too many pathways to go down. Whereas if if you say, right, VAR only, like VAR is not actually like that. It's it's not actual AI. It's, it's still a person making the decision. Yeah. Give that person 45 seconds and then they have to come back, make a decision. If it's not very clear in 45 seconds, then it's not clear enough to like lose your life over. It's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. it's whichever way you decide, we and, won't. And these stats are actually uh, go across all the leagues as well. So the Dutch, actually, the ball is in play most 97%. Is that it? Or 59, sorry, in play it's the ball is was in play for 57 minutes in the Dutch league French league 55 English the premiership 54 Bundesliga 53 dropping down all in all the time it's interesting when I World watch, Cup was 58 when I watch a match now I uh, turn on the TV at kickoff team I, I press pause and I come back about 15-20 minutes later <laughs> that is how I watch so matches. that you can forward the bits just forward through yeah, all the yeah, stoppages yeah. yeah I'd recommend it you need a desk <laughs> I need to do it but it's funny I've just always had it I, 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 I think it's about the nature of the nature of football I maybe just haven't watched a lot of really bad soccer in the 70s and 80s and thinking mm. no it doesn't need to be this long I'm delighted to see it raised it <laughs> may, never, never, may never change uh, I don't really know what we say about this or what the talking point is it's actually just very interesting and Mick Foley uh, really clever uh, idea he took Gianni Infantino's call <laughs> for the Pele stadium to appear in every country and he thought to himself oh GEA grounds around the country what, who are they all named after? And he has it broken down in a really neat graphic, which uh, makes things very easy. So we have, because it's amazing, there's Pierce Parks all over the place, but in some cases that's uh, Padraig Pierce, and in other cases that's the administrator Pierce. So there are a bunch of grounds which are just generic names, and there's scope there to maybe do something more interesting. For instance, Athletic grounds in Armagh, Ockram in Wicklow, Brefney Park in Cavan, uh, Celtic Park in Derry, Drogheda, as it's called in Louth, <laughs> uh, Limerick have gone for the Gaelic grounds, obviously, Pork Tolton and Meath, Toom Stadium in Toom, Wexford Park in Wexford. So they're the generic names. We have stadiums named after the administrators. So Cusick Park in Clare, Cusick Park, Westmeath, Fraherfield, Waterford, Nolan Park in Kilkenny. See, I would never have given a second thought to what Nolan Park who it's named after, but it's administrator. Uh, I didn't know Porky Cueve was after administrator, so Porky Cueve is an administrator. Pierce Park in Longford, Walsh Park in Waterford. Then we have the section which he calls the Rebels. So that's Austin Park, Austin uh, Stack, Stack yeah. uh, Casement Park, Markovich Park, Park Sean McDermott, Pierce Park in Longford, Pierce Stadium Galway. Then we have the clergy section. Crow Park, Dr. Cullen Park, Father Tierney Park, McHale Park in Mayo I didn't know was after clergyman. O'Donnell Park, Donegal, Park Essler in Down, that's after clergyman. The Chieftains, O'Connor Park in Offaly, O'Moore Park in Leash, uh, didn't know. And then, not many uh, stadiums named after players. Semple Stadium is, Fitzgerald Stadium is in Kerry, and Porky Rin in Cork is. And then a couple after politicians, Dr. Hyde Park, Roscommon, Parnell Park, of course, mm. in Dublin. And then the Saints, St. Conlet's Park, there. I never thought... I never we both played there. Yeah, <laughs> never gave it a second thought. I never thought like, oh, yes. who's Saint Conlus? Yeah, I never yeah. even thought about that. Never so. even asked. Yeah. And Saint Tiernus, the one in, in uh, Manhattan, yeah. And Saint Tiernus Park, Monaghan. Uh, again, I don't know what the question is, but it's interesting. Yeah, and actually, he says that um, the Dub- former Dublin hurling manager Humphrey Kelleher has spent years researching the origins of, of park names, and, and he's going to bring out a book on it, which I think would be really quite interesting as well. Like Phoenix Park. Yeah, explaining. Yeah, and and and. How how the how they built sta- how how 
parks came about in the GA and then, uh, you know, the history of them, really. So it sounds mm. interesting. But he makes the point as well that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of our our we have our we have the state GA has stadiums, but very often they don't call stands after people. And he's making point that um, and I, I've said this more than once, I think um, that uh, Parky Cueve still hasn't. Uh, hasn't named any of its stands and he throws out he's throwing the ball in here there was a brilliant debate I don't know whether you saw it he was on Twitter during the week and um, when when Infantino made this thing people started doing what, how would you change the names of Ireland so they were Pelly Mount Park Parky <laughs> Pele King Pele Breffney Park all this stuff was going on but he does say he's thrown in three for uh, stand names in um, Parky Creeve JBM, Jimmy Brian Murphy, Jack Lynch, Billy Morgan, and a toss up between Breach Corkery and Rena Buckley. <laughs> I can't understand how there isn't one called after Rena Buckley. So is already. it north, south, east, and west currently? Or <laughs> what is, usually that's. Flake away, he says, come in with your suggestions. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's funny because uh, Michael Foley and, and Jonathan Wilson were obviously yeah. thinking along the same lines, yeah. just different sports. Jonathan Wilson in the Observer was talking about this and saying that. I guess there's been a lot of talk about statues and naming things um, over the last while. You know, if you go too far back, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff in people's history and should we have statues of them, etc. But he was saying for local communities, like for putting statues up and naming stands after local heroes can be a real way of owning your community and, and um, kind of doing it a bottom up thing rather than a top down thing. Um, so he was saying that like the, the idea of naming places in Argentina after Pele would be, <laughs> you know, crazy. And the, that it is, you know, a way of um, showcasing, you know, your your local big stories and your big wins. Um, so it was interesting that, that Michael Foley was, was saying the same thing. We do have a thing here for like naming bridges in Dublin. That the person has to be dead a certain amount of time. And I don't know... Um, I think it's a bit of a fail safe just in case something bad does come out about them right. that like you don't have that like you know big hoo-ha about like oh we've named this stadium now after this person and then something bad has come out about them um, but hopefully you wouldn't have to worry too much about that in, in GA circles. <laughs> How high is too high is the uh, headline Peter Riley's piece so the choke tackle is getting on now 2008-09 was when Les Kiss, the defence coach, spotted a loophole in the law and came up with the choke tackle. And pretty much, as the piece Peter O'Reilly has written in the Sunday Times points out, pretty much helped Ireland on their way to a Grand Slam in 09. So he says uh, the choke tackle uh, was and remains a group effort. First, defender holds ball carrier upright, blocks the offload, then supporting teammate maintains the choke until the referee calls mole, whereupon the ball carrier is dragged down, scrum is awarded to the defending team, cue back slaps and hugs. And it's interesting, Stephen Ferris, who famously picked up Will Genia and ran half the field the World Cup in 2011, uh, says, at the time, I thought it was a great rule, but now I absolutely hate it, is the interesting uh, mm. line. He says, this law was initially meant to speed up the game, now it slows it down. Uh, plus, the tackle, obviously, and I guess Johnny Sexton is a good man to initiate a choke tackle. Uh, the tackle height increases the risk of concussion, the risk of a concussion being four times greater when the tackler is upright and the tackler is um, the more likely to be the injured party. And Peter Riley says it's a terrible look for a sport already suffering from a disastrous player safety image. So the uh, choke tackle alive and well 
and very much an Irish thing yeah still. but I don't think is it alive and well though Joe you'd see far far less of them far I still think maybe. don't you as well to be fair Dennis Leamy's quoted saying they don't coach it at Munster yes, anymore yes they don't and I, this and is and he really says he thinks it's the same everywhere else as well okay, yeah and, and it's an interesting piece though also because Peter O'Reilly is looking at where it might go next and what the discussions have been on it on the, on the tackling and lowering the tackle area and whether it's going to be set at the navel or below the sternum or whatever's going to happen and actually in a, it's interesting that Ina Falvey who people would know as former Irish top medic with Irish rugby yeah. and now with world rugby um, they're talking about even on the HIA protocols and all of that um, uh, he was very involved in discussions on that recently as was Joe Smith so it's just an interesting piece about where it's going to go but I actually think you don't see as much of them at all and um, I think it's probably come Fair up point. again in relation to because of Sexton's injury last yeah, week as well. I think yeah. if they got the consistency right in the refereeing we would talk about it a lot less because you wouldn't yeah. see as many what we do see is we see them and then we see them being disciplined differently. Yes, <laughs> and that's yeah. that's part of this yeah, discussion. Yeah, so it? like it, I think that the, we feel like we see them a lot more because we have to talk a lot more about the events of the of the matches because of them. Um, you know, I think if they get that consistency piece right, because um, we're talking about this a long time now. Yeah. So oh. like the, the the players coming through now should know how to tackle. Like so, you shouldn't be seeing things like you know Sexton getting injured in because of his own tackle. You know, and they're not being co- they're certainly not being coached to, to tackle high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that the coaching should be coming through now. The players coming through, like it should not be coached to do this. Do stuff. it. Yeah. yeah, it's a big change from a decade when it was the most celebrated tactic. Well, and it was such rugby. a and it was such a strong part of Ireland's harbour. I mean, yeah. literally yeah. invented it and we we're brilliant at it. it. Pioneered it. Yeah, and we're brilliant at it. Graeme Rentree did not want to talk about the issue of concussion or head height tackles in a recent interview with Paul Kimmich. You might remember this interview happened uh, towards the end of last year. It was two, three pages and uh, Paul Kimmich and Graeme Rentree uh, go quite a way back. They first met when Paul Kimmich was writing Matt Hampson's book, the uh, prop, the English, the young English uh, prop at Leicester. Book, it was yeah. paralysed. Extraordinary book, yeah. And Rentree and knew Hampson was a mentor to Hampson and that's where Paul Kimmage and Graham Rentree first uh, got to know each other. So uh, Paul reached out for an interview late last year and they sat down. And so he says it was obvious from the first moment we sat down at the Castle Troy Park Hotel in Limerick that someone had got to him. He seemed edgy or guarded. And so uh, Paul detailed some of the conversation. This didn't appear in the original interview late last year. Uh, The first half hour went swimmingly says uh, Paul Kimmage in his piece here. They talked a little bit about him personally and how he was getting on. And then he said the question Paul asked was, what about the suggestion that the game was healthier in the amateur era when you played? Healthier? Yeah, healthier. In what regard? Paul says, you're an intelligent man. I shouldn't have to spell that out for you. Graham laughed. Well, clearly I'm not. Healthier, said Paul Kimmage, with regard to the concussion, the physicality, the damage being done. How long was your playing career? And Graham Rountree says started at 19, finished at 35. And uh, it, it seems at a certain point, Graham Rountree says, I'm not getting into it. Why not? Because I don't want to. OK, I said, we'll park it. And Paul Kimmage writes, I was ready to park it. It had been a fair question and he'd given me a fair answer. But then he said something that wasn't fair. I'm not going to create a headline for you. I shook my head and sighed. Paul, I'm not naive, said Rentree. You can stop this now if you want. I'll walk out. I'm not afraid. I'm not getting effed over. Paul replied, I don't do headlines. Rentree, I don't care. I'll walk out now. Paul, I'd rather you didn't walk out. Graham, me too. But I'm not going to get pulled into something that 
concussion, dementia. I'm not getting pulled into that. Make it about my life and times, as you said it would be, my story. But don't F, o- F me over trying to create some juicy story about concussion. I don't do juicy stories. You clearly do. I clearly do not. You've made your career from doing it, said Rentry. And now I was really pissed, said Paul Kimmage. And he, he mentioned how he'd taken four years out of his life to write the Matt Hampson book. Um, that, you know, was not a financially motivated thing. That wasn't a juicy story. You're accusing me of writing juicy stories. No, I'm saying you're not going to get one out of me. I don't do that. I'm trying to explain that's what I do. Or sorry, I'm trying to explain that's not what I do. And on it goes, Rentry replies, it's not a reflection on what you've done. I couldn't give an F, but you're not doing it to me. You're not going to create a concussion story out of me. And Paul says, well, the question was whether the game is healthier. Why the F should I stay here now? You've had a little rant at me because I'm not going to roll over for you. I don't want you to roll over, Graeme. You got me here to talk about concussion. Oh, for F's sake, I said. It's a small aspect of the interview. Forget about it. We'll move on. And I guess the, the point of publishing it now, um, I guess Paul says it's it's fair game. Um, my questions about the game were valid. Rugby's in serious trouble. Will it even be played 20 years from now? What's the answer? And how's it going to get fixed if those who earn a living from the game, the administrators, managers, coaches and players won't acknowledge or address the issue? That's why, true to me, I'm raising them now. And he says, Graham's had a rough ride with Munster turning things around. He texted him a well done last week, but uh, he felt the need to publish the piece anyway. Yeah, I'm, maybe. I'm, I'm surprised Rowntree, as an initial thought, found that question particularly offensive. Like, that was my... Because I, I you hear, hear things through the grapevine in, in journalism. I had half heard that there'd been a bit of a tetchy moment in this interview yeah it had been and mentioned in uh, one of I think Brendan Fanning's maybe it was yeah, now, yeah. I had fully anticipated oh well given Paul's uh, work in this regard previously I was fully expecting oh that's about it drugs it would be on drugs yeah, yeah. He, he has obviously asked him in a very concerted hard way about drugs in rugby hit him with some facts hit him with some uh, 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 previous offenders and really gone hard at it and that's why Rentry had um, become tetchy question on concussion and like the game the safety of the game that, that's not effing anyone over no and that's why like in the the transcript aspect of it is interesting because that's that's what was said and so if we take it at face value that there was nothing said in between <laughs> these questions and answers it seems very strange that also he obviously was prepped for this interview it does seem like someone had told him to, you know to be careful going into it like well it sounds uh, like the the monster media machine had properly freaked yeah and just give him a briefing here's yeah. who Kimmage is here's the last yeah. things he's written you know be, yeah. be ready for x y and z so it seems unusual that you would be briefed on uh, going into an interview like that and then be surprised or not want to talk about a question that's quite straightforward like I don't think there would be a headline out of like no. answering like yeah you know we we do a lot of coaching to make sure that our head injuries aren't a problem that we don't get yellow and red cards you know you can even just go to that side of things you know we don't want to see red cards so we make sure that our lads like and not even get into the you know the court cases or the the future maybe he feels because he is of a generation maybe he knows a lot of players who are um in a bad way and he just doesn't want to get into it or Mm. um maybe it feels personally um I, I don't know, difficult, but it's a. Uh, it, it does seem very odd that that's the that that's the thing that got him riled up. Um, mm. Mm. Something that jumped out at me in this piece as well was because Kimish didn't use 
that element of it, obviously, right? At the time. And at the time. Yeah. And now is explaining why he didn't as well, if you like. Doesn't explain why he's using it now, really, but maybe it's in the context of the NFL and, and all the other things that are happening around concussion rugby at the moment. But he, he quotes uh, the Washington Post, uh, which I haven't read the uh, Tom Callahan's um, uh, memoir gods at play but he quotes uh, his, his this sports writer on it um he he wrote a few books on tiger woods you might remember as well He's but i've never writer, yeah, yeah i've never read in gods uh, gods at play he says is a brilliant memoir but he says that um callan was once interviewing larry bird and bird said to him the, the nba player the great boston player and he said are you going to write about my father's suicide and callan said yes and bird said do you have to and callan said it'll be small trust me and callahan's thing in his head was he said he says there are two things that, that were his guiding principles. One was true to me, fair to you. And it's an interesting, it's really, as a sports writer, as a journalist, mm. it's an interesting um, take on it because I think it probably is how you think about things sometimes when you're told things. Think, am I being am I being true to me in what I'm presenting here and am I being fair to the person that I've interviewed? So I do think that that's a very, it's an interesting line that'll probably stick with me from this. Yeah. And Paul Kimmich says that's why he's raising it now because he's been true to him. I have to say, himself. Just as a personal aside, even I do find increasingly the older I get, the less comfortable I am holding other people to account. I know it's the nature of the job when you're doing it as a journalist, but I mean, talk about casting the first stone all the time. Like Davy Russell, yeah, we're playing oh, a, an interview. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, so, such an interesting. Man. So he's super interesting, oh. and he, he gave he gave me well over an hour of his time on Thursday, oh. and it was like every answer was so so good, and we were reflecting on his twenty year career. And I thought, well, one of the things which registered with, with people was the time he punched the horse and the controversy. Yeah. So I was like, well, if I don't ask him about it, I'm not really doing my job. And if yeah, I was listening, you have to think, ask. Yeah, come on, you, you've got to get his thoughts on that now. Mm. But equally, I felt like such as I sat there having eaten meat for dinner and wearing my leather shoes and mm. like, you know, who am I to hold anyone to account on animal welfare? It does feel like such a holier than their pursuit at times. Well, it's interesting. Eamon Sweeney has a, a piece on the yeah. on the back page of a really small thing, uh, headline, Self-Righteous got it all wrong about what was best for Evan. So amid all the excitement about Evan Ferguson's amazing week, obviously with uh, Brighton, um, he remembers that both club and then manager Keith Long found themselves at the receiving end of one of those manufactured moral panics because he played when he was 14 years old. So I don't know if, I don't remember this. But I, yeah, I, played, he made, he made his, I heard Keith Long actually, the manager, uh, talking about this yesterday because he gave him his debut at 14. Yeah, so Bowes and, in a, in Bose a and Long who pointed out at the time game. that a physically powerful player who was over six foot tall was hardly your typical 14 year old or entitled to feel vindicated by how things have turned out since. But the criticism must have been hard to take at the time for a club and manager, not to mention Ferguson's father, Barry, himself a former professional, who must have been surprised that so many strangers who'd never seen his son play knew exactly what was best for him. So like at the time, people said it was indefensible and bordered on child exploitation having him play for Bowes at 14. Um, so he said those involved in whipping up that storm, no doubt, moved quickly on to the next conference controversy and forgot all about Evan Ferguson but perhaps they should think about him next time they prepare to claim the moral high ground so and it, again Our profession go, is claiming the moral high ground yes usually also, <laughs> let's face no, it it is, it is. I'm as guilty I think that goes back to yeah. your question yeah. at the start about the up the ra stuff is like why do things become news stories and yeah. so I think if you are presenting yourself as like the gatekeepers of what's right, right and wrong in journalism well that's how we get into these problems <laughs> whereas instead we should be you know 
um, providers of information so people can decide themselves what they think about it. And I think that's why we get so confused between journalism and column writing. Mm. Like, you know, but, but I think that column writing in sport, column writing transcends everything now mm. because people see live sport. But they don't need and they don't need anymore. the information anymore. And my experience in the newspaper business was that that's exactly what's happened. Sports sports. Uh, pages now are full of opinion because our interpretation because people have already seen it live and there's so much live yeah, sport. But isn't it's the, really interesting. But isn't the is. column um, say that Shane McGrath wrote, isn't that a good... Yeah, yes. It's very like, balanced. Yeah. So, um, but you're also going to the people with the expertise. So he's going to two historians saying like, give give me your insights into these, which which I can then give to my readers yeah. and I can put it through my lens of watching sport, and knowing who Leinster are, knowing who the women's soccer team but, are. But yet, Sinead, aren't we, aren't we though, as humans, also equally fascinated by the people who have experienced it firsthand and what they can t- the insights that they will give us exactly like that Brawley piece today where where somebody comes at it from an angle that's so unique to them and and has insights into it that you've never really thought about we're equally interested in that I think I'm like you I'm on the as a, as a as a journalist I'm probably on the side of let other people make up their minds I'll give them the information mm. we were always taught as journalists, you're not the story. It's never about you. But the business has changed and definitely the power and the insight of people who have first-hand experiences is equally as good, I think. Well, Sometimes I think, though, there's way too much of it and also the ghost-written stuff I just don't get. But I think they're the, t- the, t- the two things that do show. So they're you're talking streams. either a, a, a journalist going and talking to other people and forming a column around kind of e- expert um information or or expert analysis or research or someone who already has that first person experience and, and putting that out. So I think they're both valid types of journalism and column writing, but that's different to the kind of Oh, this is a talking point and I need 800 words. What do I think? Put yeah. the finger up to the wind and, and decide. And, and that takes up a lot of inches. And I think that's what you're talking about, Joe, being yeah. like, we're the, you know, that's our job then if we are the ones who are, you know, creating the moral ground. It was a great, the great piece by Mary Kenny, I think, in the Irish Times, was it at the weekend, the, the, this week? And it was about been in journalism for 60 years imagine and the differences and the changes that she's seen and the one conclusion she has made was that when she was younger she would write an opinion piece on anything and now she understands that you have to have experience to understand all the nuances and she'd be much more careful about writing opinion pieces now it's really interesting you know yeah this is stuff that interests me I know you know but it's 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 very much a niche thing I I think um Mary Hannigan wrote something really good as well about after the Vera Powell stuff came out in the report, you know, yeah. that kind of thing about like getting the context of everything and knowing. She like, made a decision not to use that American letter that that American player had written to the Irish Times, yeah. not to use it because she felt there were questions about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll push on before I turn this into a I was say, yeah. journalism yeah. symposium. Really <laughs> it's like we're journalism students sitting under a tree here. We just yeah, nobody cares is the truth. Just talk about Carberry and Crowley. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a very short break and then uh, the last couple of stories to touch on include uh, a few pieces on what happened to Damar Hamlin in the NFL. So we'll come to those in just one second. You're welcome back to Sunday Papers. So, final few minutes, we have Sinead O'Carroll and Cleena Foley going through the papers. NFL, I'm sure uh, you've seen during the week, caught the headlines for obvious reasons. David Walsh uh, writing about it. There's a good piece in the mail as well about the religious aspect of the um, situation. So, on Monday Night Football, Damar Hamlin, who's 24 years of age, uh, collapsed. He made a tackle and then he was hit in the chest by his opponent's helmet. It seemed fairly routine, but then... 
he did collapse. 21 million were watching on ESPN's coverage. And then after Hamlin lost consciousness, David Walsh points out, the audience went to a record 23 million. Everyone understood it was a life or death moment. It seems, subject to confirmation, Hamlin suffered commotio cordis, which is a cardiac malfunction that happens after a blow to the chest at a specific point in the heart rhythm cycle. A very rare phenomenon, it must be said, very rare. There were 25 medical personnel on duty. Uh, there was no pulse, no heartbeat. CPR defibrillation uh, got his heart going again. And it seems he has retained or regained consciousness. And crucially as well, there is no neurological damage, which was one of the very big fears. So there, there's different aspects of this. Dave Walsh certainly touches on the physicality in the NFL akin to rugby. He mentions the high profile case this week of Tua Tago Veloa, who really should have been taken off the pitch mm-hmm. after being sacked and was obviously concussed and he stayed on and he played a few days later. And now actually just over the Christmas period, he's back undergoing concussion protocol. And David Walsh says, we the fans are complicit in all of this. Uh, the other aspect he touches on, which is picked up in uh, greater detail in the Mail on Sunday is just the religious, um, I suppose, the extent to which Christianity is embedded in the NFL. Um, so he says, as the ambulance took Hamlin away, Buffalo players and support staff knelt, prayed on the pitch. Cincinnati crowd applauded them. A group of Bengals fans in the stadium recited the Lord's Prayer. ESPN analyst Dan Orlovsky said on the live broadcast that he needed to pray. Closed his eyes, bowed his head and said, God... We come to you in these moments. We don't understand. I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift Damar Hamlin's name in your name. And his colleagues all whispered, Amen. And that's picked up in the mail piece, which yeah. I'll grab as well. And yeah, Eve English. In Eve the English. Mail. Very interesting. Yeah, God, gridiron yeah. trust. Yeah. Just how, how US football and faith are, are huddled together is, is the headline. But uh, she has a statistic in the US today. 63% of adults identify as Christians with 45% saying that they pray daily, according to the Pew Research Centre at Washington, non-based, uh, Washington-based non-partisan think tank, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But I guess that is the thing about the states, like even in golf, uh, it's it's routine where a certain player will be walking down the fairway and the commentary on a random PGA Tour Saturday will say, oh, there's Scotty Scheffler, you know, wonderfully religious man. He's in the prayer group with, and they'll name mm, yeah. several other players. And it's, uh, it's just this aspect of American culture. Like, you can't be a politician and not say, may God bless America, may God, bless. like, it's very much, it's God. Yeah, and, yeah, it's and be under no illusions. You can't win an Oscar and, you know, like God to the fore. Even Trump, as deranged as he is, like there's the amazingly funny clip where he's asked what his favourite book is. And he says, oh, the Bible. The Bible. It's very special to me. And someone's like, do you prefer the Old or the New Testament? Because they smelt yeah, complete, yeah. Not, you know, uh, bluffery on Trump's part. And he it's, said, it's, he it's, said it's, both. It's, Couldn't, don't, <laughs> make me, don't make me pick between new and old. I think they're both, they both have great things. Um, it's striking that it is striking to us here, like, you know, yes. in, in a country where, religious. where yeah. you know, the Angelus is still played on our public broadcast here every day. And, you know, but if, if you know, if you were sitting uh, in Virgin Media and someone said, actually, we'll just say a prayer now and close your eyes, you would find it difficult to. to find to to know what to do with that, wouldn't you, as as a very experienced, skilled I, presenter? I like, wouldn't be saying amen. I'd be yeah. like, well, I don't know what I do. Yeah. It, 
And it's a, a difficult question because it feels uninclusive. It feels not inclusive to allow it to happen, but then you don't want to shut someone down if that's what they're, they need to do in the moment for their own faith and their own beliefs. So True. It, it, is a, it is a difficult one. So it, it's interesting that in a country as diverse as the States that and in a sport that's as popular as it is, mm. that this is very much where it lands. And even in the film depictions and, and programs about NFL, that's like that's what you get as it's well. It's very uniform. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know where our generation are at. Obviously, this came up with the recent death of um, the Pope. Um, there's just such anger over how the church have behaved in this country as well. There's that extra layer which feels more to the fore than it does in the States. Yeah, and we're a smaller country and I think that reached people personally much more maybe Everybody than it did in someone. America yeah yeah the difference between this is kind of like a Christianity there's yeah. lots of churches it's very broad it's a very broad church yeah. literally yeah, yes. yeah. yeah it's the Bible Belt it's various denominations yeah, as so opposed to a very Catholic and like yeah. a, a, you know a, a prayer like that um, like we don't know which church Dan Orlovsky's in but it, it the prayer is probably mm. you know generic enough for for to to fit into all the Christian faiths but yeah um, to be fair who knows what you if somebody's life was on the line you might be that shook that you'd you'd go with it yeah and they did have to like on the live broadcast they were you know going back to the commentators the commentators say we don't know what's happening go to break they went to two or three breaks in a row because they didn't know what was happening so right. um, but it was, was a very different situation from the Ericsson situation where uh, yes. there wasn't prayers I can't remember exactly what was said on on uh, live at that stage as well but it, it de- it's definitely a different culture I think yeah. there's a different culture and different attitude to faith and the phrase faith is always used in America because it's such a broad, it is such a broad thing. It means so much different. And I think to athletes, it means sort of, there's a book been brought out this only recently, isn't it? Um, one of Liam Hayes' books on on what, okay. f- including um, Van de Fleer is, is one of the people across all different Irish sports, Irish athletes about the part that play, faith plays for them. Because I'm always amazed when I when I hear people like Katie, Katie Taylor attribute her success to her God. And I think, God, oh, the amount of hard work you're doing, how does your, your faith and how does your God play a part in it? But that's that's it, that's what fascinates me about it. And actually, I think that book sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. David Watch's pieces is again about our kind of, that's what we've been talking about again, about our kind of uh, our moral hypocrisy, I suppose, as fans, you know, that 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 by being entertained by the NFL, we're contributing to you know, a sport that is extremely dangerous and yeah. why don't we question it more? I read a really interesting piece in The Athletic this week. The the average uh, length of a contract in the NFL is three years. Because of injuries. Kick, because of injuries. I mean, they're talking about the guys who are making the collisions, not the quarterbacks or the kickers yeah, yeah. or anybody else. Yeah, he talks about us as ordinary people wanting our athletes to kind of make sacrifices and offerings and you know that can be like in these very extreme instances or it can be you know the Olympic Games we know that those people do it 365 days a year for very little money and very little fame inside of four years or um, you know I watch figure skating religiously and I know that like the figure skaters are ruining their body a lot of them can't walk or stand properly by the time they're 25 26 you know they're doing quads and you're watching oh yes they got the land of the quad and then you're thinking oh god that poor guy's hips is like aren't going to be right and like is, is the answer to any of those qualms informed consent on their part therefore it's I'm not making well, they, do they, it he makes this point is that people we always say they know the risks and the gains are high but what I thought was really interesting about the article I read this week was that they were saying that um, clubs don't pay insurances and the players have to pay the insurances themselves in the NFL right. and so you get that apart from the superstars you get that middle 
to lower level which who find it very hard to pay the insurance on their salaries and that why aren't clubs paying the the insurances they're saying obviously um this uh, the buffalo bills would take care of hamlin this is such a high profile case but that actually uh, players themselves pay their insurance and their insurances are, are very high fascinating really interesting because you just i would just imagine that nfl clubs pay all their athletes insurances mm. never have thought there would be any anything different it's such a high risk sport yeah it's the, oh, and the careers are so short the one, one guarantee but is injury the, the 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 thinking is that the their their injuries are so potentially catastrophic that yeah. that's why their clubs I've stay away from the insurance end of it like my own hypocrisy in this is like I don't like watching NFL so I don't watch it um, and one of the like I don't find it particularly entertaining I don't find the clashes particularly entertaining but I, I can't say I, I don't watch it with the violence because I watch rugby every single week you know yeah. so that makes no sense in my um, when trying to figure that out I must say watching rugby now I it's changed I don't We've had this discussion Enjoy. before. I used to, I, I used to love watching the NFL and just the the quality of the tackling and the hits. And now I, now because I understand the damage that it's doing, I yeah. just I can't. I, I've, and I'm feeling similarly with with rugby. You know, increasingly until rules are changed, you do kind of well. You're certainly wincing and you're thinking, oh. Well, I, I find it, it's difficult as well to talk about it because we celebrate the physicality and, uh, like, we'll do analysis pieces and say how, you know they smashed them or like yeah, you yeah. know brought the intensity which is a hits, euphemism yeah or the hits yeah. the word hits we, we use gladiatorial language we yeah, kind of yeah we do romance at a touch yeah like so yeah. you know feeling a little bit self-conscious about that lately I have to say Tigburn, and Josh van der Fleer their kind of resurgence is you know or when we talk about them being small and you're like <laughs> Tigburn's on the smaller side what like yeah. is he big enough to be a lion uh, yeah I think uh, yeah I think some of that is does it un- undercut your enjoyment watching it when you're in the 80 minutes? Um, uh, to be honest, probably a lot of my enjoyment about rugby is much more about the football than about the intensity, really. Like, okay. I think probably, you know, in 20 years time, I could enjoy watching sevens as much as I currently right, enjoy okay. watching fifteens. Yeah. Like, it's, it's it's the football I enjoy in the rugby. So okay. that stuff doesn't actually like so I, it, I think if they if they just figured out a way of playing the game slightly differently, that they don't need that level of intensity or hits yeah. it could be just as enjoyable yeah. you know and fielding a 15 fielding a, a, a kick you know I think I've talked before about how I just love Joey Carberry's like just goal kicking he's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. beautiful kicker of the ball um, the more skillful aspects yeah, yeah the, are, you the good, are you good keeping being, catching yeah, you know, going up and catching clean the ball, offloading means so much better now than it even was five six years ago like yeah. that's the stuff that that that, that um, and then some of the the more intense stuff, like you know, Tigburn like and turnover. But they, again, that's still a bit the ball rather. It is. Than yeah. it, it's, yeah. Do you know? I remember when scrums. I remember watching the game and, and going to games, and, and when scrums were really dangerous and used to collapse. I'm seeing injuries. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but the neck injuries and, and the potential damage there, and they they deliberately went about making the scrums yeah, safer. Taking out the hit. So you know, I know my reaction is different now watching scrums. I've, I don't I don't feel that. And even when they go down, I go, oh, you know, you're worried somebody's going to get hurt. So I think we are more conscious now please change the rules please make it safer please do something to make sure that these catastrophic injuries you know don't happen uh, just to mention uh, briefly we've talked about this at, at length but Zor Antje is interviewed by Mark Gallagher in yes. the Mail on Sunday Olympics are fast approaching and Ireland are aiming or Zor says well there's 13 weight divisions in Paris seven male six female and Antje's ambition is to have a boxer for each weight class why not he asks and Ireland have obviously dominated uh, the boxing year that has been Irish fighters won 51 major medals at international events they 
the women in particular excelled at the European Championships and akin to when Joe Ward and Kenny Egan boxed off a couple of years ago mm. it does seem for Olympic qualification they're trying to manage the situation so for instance when it comes Amy to Broadhurst Amy gone Broadhurst up. She, yeah, she's, it's like how can we avoid her and Kelly Harrington yeah, having and Joe and Ward, Amy Broadhurst said it yeah and she actually I, I interviewed recently and she said I'm going up I'm going up to 66 which is going to provide uh, new challenges for her but it's a good piece Joe it's a really good piece and before people say what about our moral hypocrisy and there is an element of moral hypocrisy when you talk about boxing as well but I do think amateur boxing which I like to watch um, is safer and they're wearing headgear and they're shorter rounds and I do think it's a safer element of it but it's a really good piece Zor is really passionate that if you don't have Olympic boxing, you don't create the talent and the skill, you know, that that may want to go on to become professionals. But he also and Mark makes this point that one of the reasons box the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, want to keep boxing in is because it is such a socially, uh, economic and ethnically diverse sport, you know, and that they want to hold on to it. But their problem is with the international governance of it. Um, that's why they took charge of the qualification process the last time. Um, this is a really good article. It covers everything, covers when the qualification is going to start, potential for the Irish team, but also what's happening on the international thing. It's a very good, it's a two-pager. Yeah, Umar Kremlev is the guy who's taken over boxing. Gazprom are the sponsors. Putin is very much on board. Uh, Russia effectively are hijacking boxing. And as we know, the threat is very much there from the IOC that they're going to remove boxing from the LA Games in 2028. It's not, it's not on the programme. So like it, that decision needs stand. to be reversed. Yeah. So it's not like it's it's a threat. It's, it's like there. unless something major happens. And I think everyone feels like uh, oh they can't take boxing out so like it'll be fixed it'll be fixed but you know as as the years like you know get closer and closer how how does it get fixed like what's the resolution so, no. so um, we so can't just kind of hope it away No Zor says on the situation I'm worried very worried so he's certainly not dismissing it as uh, they'll sort it out he, his, his one hope and it's kind of a baseless hope to be honest he's just saying we'll take the USA all their Olympic history with Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard and the 28 games are on in USA in LA mm. I think the USA mm. will play a part in ensuring that an agreement is reached so he's kind of banking on and you, USA and USA boxing are very powerful in world boxing yeah. like they do have a strong voice in it but then you also have you've had this new this new uh, setup, which Ireland uh, Irish amateur boxing are part of a new there's a new group trying to say look at maybe it needs a new new governance will we set up a whole different body the, of governance the problem is once you're off the programme there's so many sports oh. vying to get in yeah. so like getting back in is much more difficult than you would think because you know even if USA boxing are strong like all the other things that have just come in you know surfing will have been co- uh, will have come in skateboarding was in uh, for Japan you esports know, you know yeah so um, like it, it is um, I can't I'll have to check but wrestling was out and I don't think it's got back in it hasn't yeah no, no. so th- you know that but boxing is so integral it, it like it, Zara makes that point historically it was there forever yeah. but the problem is the governance now is such a big issue and yeah. there's so so much politics in this it is it is going to be very interesting and you even hear Irish, the young Irish boxers saying Will it will it exist? Will I will I be you know will I have to go straight to the program? Yeah. Which is very tough. It pl- it plays such a part in 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 local communities. There's boxing clubs in in towns where you wouldn't even know they're there. You know it's just such a, a brilliant sport. And I, he he also makes points which I didn't know here. It's in Monkstown Boxing Club, um, who have a number because the nationals are just starting. That's partly the reason why this is starting. National championships get underway on Thursday, and that's a big you know. There's always a really interesting time here. See who comes up, and they're the IAB are asking like if you're if you're available, you've got to. Boxing these, we want to see what's going on. But um, 
Monkstown Community Centre shut their doors for the festive period it left the local boxing club in a bind they had nowhere to box and Kula the local GA club said yeah come in you can use you can use it so it just I gives you a sense of where of its part in communities yeah. I was going to make the link there's a, a piece in the Sunday Independent today um, looking at the non-entwinedness of uh, Johnny Cooper and David Tuberty's oh, uh, careers given that they've both uh, announced their retirement within days um, and the I think it's Dermot Crowe, is is saying, you know, two amazing talents and just very different career trajectories because of where they were born and the time that they were born in. So it's interesting to think of the boxers that won't have Olympic medals if there's no 2028. The the boxers who will just have a very different life to, say, a Katie Taylor or Kelly Harrington because they were born, you know, in... 20, 2005, 2006 yeah. and, and won't, yeah. won't get a chance, get won't get the opportunity. So it is, uh, it would be an absolute um, awful thing for Ireland um, and for, but for, for boxers over the, like you Cuba or mm. <laughs> um, boxers all over the world. Um, the idea that the, the dreams that they strive for are just gone because of like in the same way in so many sports across the world, bad governance. Oh, like, mm. I know it's surreal. Uh, we're out of time. Is there anything that you desperately want to mention that people should read that we didn't get a chance to touch on? Um, Martin Samuel's been signed by the Sunday yes, Times. Yes, uh, yeah, starting next week. Yeah, so people would from the mail. Yeah, from the mail. Yeah, people would. I think it was announced a while ago. Yeah, it's I just a fashion thing, isn't it? We've signed. Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, nothing. Um, Even Fitzmaurice had a nice piece, I think, in in the Indo, um, just on Oshin McEntee, who's um, who's from Cavan, who's playing soccer in England. Walsall. Really good piece, I thought, on just the difficulties that young Irish lads face. He was in Newcastle. Yeah, for five years. Horrendous injuries. Instead of at six operations. Oh, horrendous. 22. Yeah, and part of the company. And also how his background is totally, is totally GA and all his mates are either Cavan mm. or football or, or Monaghan footballers. And it just brought me in mind that Leanne Kernan is going to be a potential again from uh, from Bailiborough from up that direction. He's Shercock and just the really in Ireland how sport you know the variety of sport that's available and it just depends as and you say on, on the course of where your life takes yeah, you Yeah Invis Morris actually also has a piece with Niamh Fahey and it she's is, talking yeah. about yeah. you know after the World Cup maybe she will come back to Galway and play, <laughs> play football with Galway and we've seen Sarah Rowe now sign Sarah Rowe thinks yeah. yeah. um, Sarah Rowe's like that World Cup looks like fun isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> here? I think she was very open with saying yeah it's a dream I think it's probably a, a dream rather than and a, I interviewed Vera Powell recently and she said um Remember, she said initially, she said uh, they're coming out of the woodwork now, you know, Irish abroad diaspora who are saying I've got Irish relatives. But she was saying if they don't have a passport already and it's well proven, we're not going at, we're not okay. going near them. And also, she said there's no way we're bringing in new players at this point unless they're better than what we have. She said they're really, really very disruptive to the. Yeah, morale. I think there will probably be a couple of new there players in oh, February. She's looking but at I think four. they'll be at the February camp. She's been yeah. looking at four yeah. very specific. She said there are four that she's looking at. Yeah. Right, OK. Uh, Sinead O'Carroll, Clean Foley, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. The more you play with people, the more you get used to their position, you get used to their movements, and obviously you build chemistry. Did it take long to build the chemistry with Shane Walsh then? No, it didn't take long at all. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.